We are studying the book of Romans. We just read what we're going to study, and you're probably like, what just happened? My task today is to simplify what we just read so that you can apply it in your life. All right? So Paul, in 57 AD, writes a letter to the church in Rome. He's writing them with one specific goal. He's wanting them to understand what it means to be a Christian. And so as he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, he's writing it, and, and he starts off with that, with the, the first two chapters, he started off with, look, creation reveals who God is. He sort of walked us down this road, and, and where we left off last week was the idea of judging others, and he's being very pointed here. He's like, look, you judging someone else doesn't remove your sin. And this is what he's building on. So the platform we're building on right now is your judgment of someone else does not remove your sin. And so leveraging that, here we go, chapter 2, verse 12, we're going to pick up here. It says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's simply saying, look, you can have the law, right? You can have, first of all, we've all sinned, so there's that have the law, there's the law, just because you have the law, you know the law, just because you know the, the law, and this is actually speaking for us, first five books of the Bible, the general law, just because you know this does not remove your sin. So he just left this idea of, hey, I want you to know what it means to be a Christian. I mean, everybody can see God's handiwork from creation, it just declares who he is. And he's like, there is a judgment day, and you're not the judge. Judging others doesn't remove your sin. Now he's saying, just because you have or you know the law does not remove your sin. So there's something missing here. He wants every one of us to understand this. Verse 13, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. So he's saying, having it, hearing the law, it doesn't make you right with God just because you have it or you've heard it. Just hearing the truth does not make you right with God. There still has to be this filler that has to take place. He keeps going, he says, but the doers of the law will be justified. The doers of the law. Um, now, I know that this is a buzzword. In fact, last week, after the service, I had multiple, multiple people ask me, hey, are you going to talk about works? And what are works? And, and, and what does that look like? How do we honor God through works? And what ways, why is he talking about works? Absolutely, we're going to. But this is not dealing with works. And I need to separate this out. When he says here, he's like, the hearers of the law, they're, they're not righteous before God just because they hear it, but it's the doers of this law. So it's those who do the law. So now the immediate question for most people is, okay, now tell me the law. Tell me what I need to do in order to be right with God. Well, he's been very clear, and he's going to get even clearer through this letter. The only way we are right with God is through our faith in Christ. It is Christ alone who makes us right with God. But what he's going to do here is he's going to say, look, it's not the doers, it's, the, it's not the hearers, it's those who do the law. Well, what is the law? Well, let me strip it back to the portion of the law that I think is eternal. And it's the start of what I feel and what I know, and those of you who know the Old Testament and know Torah, you know that this is a catalyst for everything. Says in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four and five. The one is part of the law, Torah. This isn't dealing with rituals. This isn't dealing with morals. This is dealing with the straight law. Like this is where he's like, look, this is where the rubber meets the road. He says, Hero Israel. He 
Moses' writer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Can we just pause there really fast? You shall love the Lord your God. So this is, you want to know how to please God, just saying, look, love the Lord your God. This is part of law. And then watch this. With all your heart. Now this is the keynote here. This is the centerpiece of all of this text. Everything that we have covered, everything we're going to cover today, and even everything we're going to cover for the next several weeks. It's always about this heart issue. And with all your soul and with all your might. I need to understand that as he's putting this together, it's like, just because you hear about God, it's not enough. Your heart has to be surrendered to him. Your heart needs to be his. And so it's this, this pull. is like, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you are given your heart. Your heart belongs to him. And now what Paul's about to do is he's going to say, look, here, that's the basis of it, right? And now nobody's off limits. Like, I mean, he is a, he's going to take shots at everyone. What he's about to go through, he's about to go through this, and nobody's safe here, all right? So he's going to start with the Gentiles. He's going to go into the Jews. No one's safe here. He's, I mean, I, I got this cup for Christmas from a friend. I'll show you a couple of these cups. So um, this is my, this is what I love, because no one's safe around me, all right? No one's safe. And this is what Paul is about to do. He's like, but no one is safe. He's going after all of them. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles, and I'll explain this to you, okay? But for when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are the law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So what he's saying here is, like, look, the Gentiles, these are non-Jews, so primarily he's referencing the Greeks there, but this is many of us in this room today as well. He says, in the law, he says, look, they don't have the law. The law does not apply to them. It's not, they don't have the law. And so they still do things that the law requires them. And so by doing things that the law requires, he's simply drawing this out. He's like, look, there is a conscience. And this is really a a carryover from Romans 1. In Romans 1, he's talking about the fact that we are without excuse. The reason we're without excuse is because the heavens declare who God is. I referenced it a few weeks ago. You go to the ocean cannot deny that there is a massive loving God. You go to the mountains, you see God's creative work, you watch the sunset. And so, he's like, we are without excuse. God, clearly, his handiwork is all around us, constantly. Like, they have a conscience. And even in this, what he's saying here is, they know right and wrong. So, in other words, he has just said, look, even the Gentiles, I, I know they don't have the law, but you can still see that they live by a moral And that moral code that many people, even still to this day, try to live by is not going to stand in the gap of your sin. Your moral code does not remove your sin. Your moral code does not honor God in the way that we would want it to, the way that it's been sold to. It's it's fascinating to me. Let me me go to the next verse because I want this to connect. It says in verse 15, they, they still being the Gentiles, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So there's a moral code there, right and wrong, they got this. While their conscience also bears witness. So even inside, they know right and wrong. And it says, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He's like, so there's this moral code that exists in us, and we know this. This is, this is true. And inside of us, we know right and wrong. 
And what's crazy about this is our right and wrong, we will sometimes justify our wrong, even though we know we're wrong. And then other times, we will accuse ourselves, beat ourselves up, because we feel like we're not doing enough, or that we're failing in this, or we're failing that. Both of those things remove Jesus from the equation. And what Paul is wanting them to understand is there is a moral code here, and and understanding this moral code, understanding it, it says you can you can have moral standards, but that does not remove your sin. It's really important for us to begin to grab a hold of this because we're going to open this up for us. Right and wrong does not remove sin. Verse 16. Because on that day, all right, those of you who were here last week, what day am I talking about? Judgment. That was just last week. He is the judge, and there is a judgment day. You are not the judge. And for those in this room who love to judge people, that is, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. You cannot live a peaceful life judging other people. You will have bitterness in your heart. You will have jealousy in your heart. Your mind's going to be consumed with everybody else. And we are as believers, our minds should be consumed with him. Not everybody else. We get it all all out of whack. But he's saying here, on that day, Judgment Day, when according to my gospel, I got it. God judges the secrets of men out of his sight. So what Paul has just done here is he's like, look, I great. You have a moral code. Great. You want to judge people. Understand that it's not your job, and your moral code is not what the gospel requires. In fact, when he says his gospel here, just to make sure we're clear, Paul's already said that the gospel reveals two things. The first thing it reveals is God's righteousness, God's goodness. The second thing that the gospel reveals is God's wrath. And so when he says here, my gospel, he's saying, this is the gospel that I am sold on. This is the gospel that saved me. This is the gospel that I believe in. This is the gospel that Luke passed on. This is the gospel. It is all about Jesus. He is the good news. Your moral code is not good news. He is good news. Your moral standards are not good news. He is good news. And so as he opens this up, he's saying, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. Now, what I want us to understand in this room is he has just told us something very important about judgment. God is not going to judge you. The Father will not be the one who judges. Let me support this scripturally here. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 33, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, in verse 32, before him will be gathered the nations, him being Jesus, by the way, all the nations. He will separate people one from another, and shepherds from shepherds. He will, and as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right side and the goats on his left side. This is setting up the judgment. John chapter 5, verse 22. As we get more direct than this, who does the Father judge? But he has given all judgment to the Son. He's given all judgment to him. And this is fitting. When you begin to factor in and you think about how gracious God is, God chooses to step out of heaven, walk on earth, go to Calvary's cross, be tortured on Calvary's cross, then placed in a borrowed tomb, and then three days later, the resurrection showing his power over life and death. But when we see this, Jesus has every right to be our judge because he is ultimately the one that has taken our sin on his shoulders. This is years ago. I was uh, I was probably 23. Change my life right now. I was probably 23, 
education courses here and there. And my wife and I went to dinner with uh, a guy who just spoke at our church, a messianic Jew. And he was sitting there, and I thought, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a young pastor, and I, I said, all right, I said, I, I, you want me to bless the food? And he said, no, please don't. And I said, oh. I said, um, would you like to? He goes, no, it's just food. So I said, oh. And I said, why don't, why, you don't like to pray for food? He goes, no, he goes, here's the thing. Anything you bless becomes an idol. So we believe that if you bless something, it's going to, now we only bless the Lord. The Lord is the only one we bless. And he blessed the Lord, and I thought, oh, that's kind of crazy. And so he goes, yeah, so we'll keep talking. And he said this, he goes, change the way I see the gospel, change the way I see the cross. It was so impactful to me. Now, again, this is a messianic Jew who comes from rabbinical teaching, who comes from meaning, um, I'm going to have to use the word, but logic over faith in the times. He wants practical over just philosophical. And so from the rabbinical teaching, he said, let me teach you what my view of the cross of Jesus is. I said, I would love that. He says, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? He said, to cover our sin. He goes, no, 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 deeper than that. Why did he have to die for sin? I said, oh, because he's fulfilling a covenant. You know, God made covenant with Abraham because a covenant was made that had to be fulfilled, and God himself had to fulfill it, so that was Jesus. He said, no, that's true, but God sent his son, and Jesus willingly crawled on the cross, and let me explain to you what it does. Messianic Jews sat in the cross and said, 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 the cross is the food. The church is the food, by the way. Or let me say it the other way. He says, but what I need you to understand is it's not just the church, but it's a representation of the tree that has the fruit of the man that appeared in the garden of Eden. And it wasn't just the fact that it was a tree that represented the cross. He wants you to cross it goes even deeper. He says, the ant, the man to actually reach up and grab the tree had to be pierced by Jesus' his feet were pierced. You know why his feet were pierced? I was like, no, why was his feet pierced? He said his feet were pierced because that's the first first prophecy of Jesus is in Genesis 3.15 and it dealt with the feet. I said, oh, he goes, and his side being pierced? You know why his side was pierced? He said, no, I don't know why his side was pierced. Tell me why his side was pierced. He said his, pierced, his side was pierced because Eve, which was taken out of his side, was also cursed and so it's representing that she was also part of the curse. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. He goes, and you know why he had a crown of thorns on his head? I said, I have no idea why he had a crown of thorns on his head. Can you please tell me why he had a crown of thorns on his head? He said he had a crown of thorns on his head because the original curse in Genesis chapter 3, it says the ground that you walk on will be cursed with thorns and thistles. And so he took the literal curse that was placed on all of humanity and on the earth and he put it on his head to show I carry the curse of humanity. always these connecting pieces. Everything connects. One thing connects to the next. And so, Jesus is the judge and he's the rightful judge because he took our sin, he took the curse of sin and he put it on his very own head. And so when he comes back and he does stand to judge, the curse that he received will be passed on to those who have rejected him. And so that's what is being pointed to. It goes on in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew, all right, Beat up on the Gentiles for a minute to have because they had moral codes. These are moral standards they focused on. Now he's going to jump to the Jews and he's going to begin to pick on them for just a moment. Again, no one's off limits here. But I was just asked the question: What defines a Jew? And I'm going to have a conversation with you. And I may go in deeper into this next week. But what defines a Jew? And the idea of understanding Hebrew or Jew, both of them. So 
Abraham was um, father Abraham of his own and his own side father Abraham. So from Abraham we get the whole line. It comes all the way down. We study this through Genesis. It goes all the way down, and we get finally to the twelve tribes of Israel. So from Abraham, who Abraham, by the way, was not Hebrew, did not exist yet. Hebrew did not exist yet. But from Abraham's offspring through the twelve tribes, this is the line of the Jews. And so from Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Really, you track them down. They all three received the promise from God that God's favor and hand would be on them, that His protection would be with them. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the way through their line, anyone who is born and comes through that line is Hebrew. Anyone who comes, born, comes through that line is known as a Jew. All the way through 2,000 years later, they still trace this and track this way down. So what makes someone a Jew? Well, it's very clear. From the Israelites, the Hebrews, 12 tribes, as we watched in the Old Testament, God cut covenant with them, protected them, led them through the wilderness, led them through all kinds of craziness, and saw God's hand is with them. Even today, and I know this is a hot topic with Israel and Palestine and Hamas and all the things, but, I mean, Israel sits in just a little tiny peanut in the land of this massive Arab who all want to kill them. All of them want to destroy them. Messiah. Who's next? And honestly, it, it, the hand of God is on them. Now, when God chooses, Teaches us this in the scriptures. When God chooses, He is going to remove His hand of protection, and there will be mass destruction that takes place in Israel. But that time isn't today. It could be tomorrow, but not today. And so, understanding what is a Jew is someone who lives under the promise of Abraham. This is why Paul later on in another book is going to say that we are grafted in as Jews because we live under the promise as well. I'll get more into this in the weeks to come, but. The Jews. This is who he's addressing here. He says, you rely on, this is good, you rely on the law. You rely on the law. It means you rely on your rules. You rely on what you know. You rely on the law, and you boast in God. And we keep going into the next verse. This is in verse um, something, 18. Oh, it says, and know his will and approve of what is excellent. So let me just stop here because the approve what is excellent. Excellent. I need you to understand this word so that we can make the next pieces of this make sense. So this idea of excellent. I was actually playing golf with uh, my son and two of my friends, one of my really, really good friends. I was standing on a tee box with him. His name's Jerry, and I'm, somehow or another, something came up, and I said, man, you look excellent. And I saw my son just looked at me, and then, and then Jerry, because he, he's a very smart man, he said, no, 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 you look spectacular. And I said, no, 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 you look great. If I look as good as you, I'm like, yes, you do. You look great. And we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We got back in the golf cart, and my son is just shaking his head. I'm like, why? And he just looked at me and goes, are you sure? And I said, why? He goes, you just told another man who looks excellent. He said, two things. One, who says excellent? And when did my dad become a college girl? <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right, you can get out of the cart and walk, right? Carry that bag. But this word excellent, I need you to know what this means. Because this word excellent, actually, it's the word essential. So he's like, so he's saying, hey, you yourself, as Jew, you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will. So it means you know the will of God. You know what he desires for you. And this is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. You know this. And you know what is excellent. You know the essential. You know all the essentials. What Paul is saying to the Jews is, you got all the answers. You know everything you need to know. But watch this. 
because you are instructed from the law. So the law, he's saying, gives you everything you need. Next verse, verse 19. And if you are sure, let me come back to that. I'm going to come back to this in a second. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, only Jesus is that, by the way, a light to those, only Jesus is this, by the way, to those who are in darkness. Okay, i got to deal with this. i got one more verse to read, but I want to deal with this. Last week, there was this point where I, I pointed out this word that was going to be logic. So if you're going to logic this way, and then I moved to the next word, and it was the word presume. And I, and I used that word presume, and I, I said this is the um, original language, Greek word, actually broke it down to disregard. So if you're going to logic God this way, if you're going to disregard God this way, there's results to that. We dealt that with that last week. This week, right here, what you see is if you are persuaded, if you have persuaded yourself, that's what he's saying here. If you've persuaded yourself that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those, because you've persuaded yourself, verse 20, you've persuaded yourself that you are an instructor of the foolish, and instru- a teacher of children, having the law, that embodiment of knowledge and truth. It's like you've persuaded yourself that you have all the things you need. You've become ultra, ultra. In fact, more specifically, what he's saying here is, I want to compliment you. As Paul's writing, he's like, let me offer you a compliment. He's like, you have the right instrument, the right heritage. You are Jewish. God's promise is over you. And he says, and you have the right book. You have Torah. You have law. And you understand the essential things of God. So you've got the right heritage. You've got the right book. He goes on, and he's like, you have the right instruction to give. All this sort of compliments take the place. But what he has actually said is, you've got all of the religious stuff. But you have the wrong practice. This is where he starts. You have the wrong practice. Here's the practice. Let's pick up verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor... I, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Gentiles are blaspheming the name of God because of the Jews. You got all the information, you got all the knowledge, you got the head knowledge, you got the law, you've got all the essentials, you know all the essentials, yet you live like a hellion. You are out of control. You are rebellious to God. And the Gentiles are looking going, why would I put my faith? Why would I trust the gods that they worship when they act like that? So how close am I getting? This is, this is Paul, 2,000 years ago, writing to a little church in Rome. How close am I to you? How close am I to us? I just find myself really intrigued with like some things just never really change. Because as a Christian, which is what Paul's trying to define here, as a Christian, he's saying, look, as a believer, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to understand. You need to know and you need to understand that you have all the right answers. His name is Jesus. You have all the right focus. His name is Jesus. You have all the right instruction. His name is Jesus walk around, how much damage do you and I, and 
church today due to the name of Jesus and the world around us. Now, what's interesting is we have actually allowed standards and morals. Let me go into the next verse here. We've allowed standards and morals to begin to dictate this. Listen to verse 25. For circumcision, indeed, is value if you obey the law. Obey the law. Now, this word if brings in works to it. Okay, this is like, this is value if you obey. So if you do this, if you do this, then it works. It says, but if you break the law, your circumcision circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So this is a whole nother level. So he's saying, look, this is not dealing with just works. And so when we think about works, we think about deeds. And that's the question that was being asked every last week. And even if we go back to the very, very first, when I was talking about, what verse is that? Verse 13, talking about the doers. That doers is not representing the works. This is. And this is actually broken down like this. Works is actually ritual. And so if I were to begin to sum this up, he's like, look, the Gentiles, man, they have moral code and moral standards. The Jews, they have, more, they have law. They have, they have the Torah, they have the law. Neither the standards nor the law removes that. Neither one of them. And now he says, even your rituals, the rituals you do, circumcision, I understand this may not be one that we want to talk about, but even circumcision, which is your ritual, it does not remove sin. In fact, today, if I were to bring this home today, it makes it easy for us because we just watched however many people be flooded to church over here. Through baptism, this is a spiritual discipline, and this is a representation of an inward face giving an outward expression. This would be what I would consider to be the same as circumcision of this time, meaning it was an outward expression of who you were. Ritual. Blessed by God, commanded by God, absolutely, absolutely, but this does not save your soul. Baptism does not redeem you. This is moral standards, do not protect you from judgment or remove your sin. Knowing the Torah does not remove your sin. Being baptized does not remove your sin. The only thing that removes sin is faith in Jesus. And so as he begins to go through, I have way more I wanted to say, but I'm going to just move on to the next verse. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, this means the standard of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He's now getting to the literal core of this. He's getting to the core of it. Verse 27. Then he who physically, who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, yet you break the law. He's like, don't say one thing and do another. Don't try to live by ritual and then don't let yourself be right with God. And so watch this. This is so good. The next verse, verse 28, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Christianity is not an outward expression. We've created it to be. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. Why don't you do this? Because I don't do these things because I'm a Christian. Christianity is not an outward expression. It is an inward face. Now that inward face is never supposed to be silent. So there will be outward expressions of our faith. But so often we flip this. Look at this. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. He's like, look, there is something deeper. Here's what's deeper. He says in verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. It's what's in his heart. It's what's in his soul. And the circumcision is a matter of the, this is the key. And this is, we're going to be pounding away at this for the next couple of weeks. 
the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the law, whose praise is not from man, but from God. So, those who live by man, you're in trouble. Those who try to please man, that means man's religious, man's religion, man's standards, man's moral codes. You're in trouble. This is what Paul is discussing in this portion of the letter. I told you when we started that my job is to simplify it, but we do. Here's what he's discussing. Here's what he said to the church in Rome at AOB. He said, moral code does not remove sin. Understanding law, the Torah, understanding God's word, hearing God's word, does not remove sin. It doesn't. Having rituals and going through rituals, nah, not going to cut it. It doesn't do it. He's saying, your walk with Jesus, your life with God, it is a heart issue. It's what's going on in your heart. I understand that we all want to see good deeds. We want to do good deeds. We want good things to reflect. But at the core, what Paul is wanting the church in Rome to know is you're calling yourself a Christian. Here's the key. It's about your heart. Forget about everything else for a moment. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? And I think that this is something that the church today has to literally bed right now. act a part, we can paint a smile on, then we will get on Facebook and literally destroy another human being. We will let politics control our emotions, dictate what we're going to think, how we're going to pray, how we're going to celebrate Him. Look, we're getting into a crazy year, and I'm going to remind you guys over and over and over that our politics are not, we're not politicians here in Christ. That means that we protect our heart, we guard our heart, we secure our heart, and we absolutely understand that God has chosen us to let His light shine. So what I need us to really focus on here during this verse, because where we're going next week, all hinges on this. One question. Where is your heart? I'm not asking you if you think you should get saved. Because you probably do. I'm not asking you if you know the Bible. You probably do. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized and you have rituals and things. You probably have and you probably do. What I'm asking is what Paul was saying here. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Where's your heart really? Where's your heart really? God, I thank you for the fact that you have given us a word that is so relevant to us because I know in this room we are swayed by our emotions, swayed by the things around us. And it may not be moral code, it might not be religious code, but there are things that literally dictate our joy and our peace and our thoughts. And I praise you that although we didn't cover it today, it's clear that as Paul is pointing us, he is pointing us to the only answer, the only solution, the only focal point is Jesus himself. And so God in this room what I pray over my church family is that you would let us be men and women who don't just simply sing about our Savior. We don't simply talk about our Savior. We don't simply read about our Savior. But we walk with our Savior. We follow the very footsteps that Jesus laid out. And we treat people to ourselves in a way that's going to honor you. So Lord, what 
I pray over my church family today that our hearts would be one in unity. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus' name, everybody in the house.